different sort of backdrops to things. And, and I like using the fact that, say, in the 1800s, there was less technology. Um, I find things like that interesting, and I write characters sort of based around that. Uh, I was a uh, civil servant for 30 years, 20 of those were in uh, security and counterterrorism. So uh, when I started to write, I wrote, well, I started to write quite a few in there, and uh, turned to my next project for crime, and written three so far, a perfect time to go to third, uh, a quiet place to kill was the first, a silent place to die was the second, and they're all set in and around a fictional airbase in uh, Little Kent in World War II, uh, in, a, in a nearby village. Uh, the first one is uh, serial killer, the second one is also a serial killer, but kind of roams a bit further afield towards Chatham Dockyard. The third one uh, veered a little bit. Um, I went on a trip north to uh, the National Coal Mining Museum near Huffington Wakefield, and uh, I met a chap there who was called Big Bird while we were down, and I fired all these questions at him, and I think he was getting quite worried because I was saying things like, How long does it take off and use monoxide on dioxide to kill you? Um, what was the level of concentration, the blood that you need to you know, be incapacitated, all that kind of thing. And uh, in the end, I had to admit I was an author of trying to get a story. So, um, yeah, so uh, that's how I came to, uh, to write these things. And uh, they are historical crime. But although it's set in World War II, it's mainly about the, the crime and the characters, not the back. The war is just a backdrop. And I chose that because uh, my father was very, you know, being of his generation, we were all very much into that. It took me to all the places around London. That had you know, like Manchester Belfast and uh, various museums, so I knew quite a bit about it anyway. Um, and uh, the one of the characters is uh, a female ATA pilot, air transport delivery pilot, and she uh, she came about because I actually met one at a local museum. Uh, she was 92 at the time. She died the following year, but she. Uh, she had some wonderful stories about her life, and I thought, yeah, that's going to be my female sleuth that comes up against this detective. Um, and I also wanted to do something about profiling. She became a, a profiler in an era when nobody was profiling, uh, unless you believe Sherlock Holmes, of course. Uh, so that's me, then. Hello, uh, I'm Jonathan Hall. I normally start off by saying I'm a primary school teacher, but I retired last week. So I can't. <laughs> However, that kind of says everything there is to say about my books, um, which are about three retired primary school teachers. The first book was almost an accident. Um, my father was very, very badly frauded, and I wrote the first book as a kind of a way of getting that out of my system with no thoughts about getting it published. And suddenly I had a publishing deal and they wanted a second book. So in the first book, A Spoonful of Murder, I got these, yep, teachers you would see in any staff room up and down the country. They solved their ex-colleagues' murder. And in the second book, Pendant in Poison, um, someone has started sending anonymous letters to the staff of the primary school. And then in the third book, which comes out in March, one of their friends goes into this rather strange charity shop on a winter's night, but when she comes back the next day, 
the shop was gone. Oh. Thank you. That's the best noise. Um, so, how did you select either the time or the um, the place that you chose? Um, Guy, obviously, you've got both, but why did you choose those particular time periods and places? <clears throat> well, actually, for me. Um, yeah, the, the first one, Mirror Game, I really liked the idea of sort of post-war London. Um, it was a weird time because this is the First World War, so there'd never been a World War, and no one really, although it was sort of expected, no one really knew what would happen afterwards. And there was even talk of the world would descend into chaos, and, um, it, and there was just this really dark um, atmosphere. And as a writer, I was really drawn to that. Um, and I wrote two versions of The first version I wrote, um, I wrote the whole thing and um, sort of realised it was awful. <laughs> and I deleted it, I let's delete, you know, they say, kill your dogs. Well, I really did. I, I deleted the whole book and started again. And I had the main character, Harry Lark, who I really liked. And I started again with him. Um, and he's a detective. Um, he's been in the trenches, so he's a sort of veteran. Um, He's got, because he was injured, he's addicted to laudanum. They give laudanum out really freely. Um, so he has problems with that. And um, he has to solve a, a reappearance of this man who died in the trenches years ago, who suddenly reappears, but he's not quite who he says he is. Um, and, and I loved it. And everything really came from that time period. Um, I, I just really liked it. I like, this is why I like sort of writing a bit further back. Um, because there wasn't emails, you know, there wasn't any of this stuff, so uh, it, it was a bit harder, and, and something about that challenge to characters I sort of really like. Um, and then I went slightly further back, um, and it is always time and place for me, that's the, the thing I start with, before character actually. Um, I sort of see a time and place, and um, I'd always like the idea of Victorian London. I think a lot of writers do, you know, um, top hats and and all that sort of stuff, so it really appeals to me. Um, and um, it, it was a sort of what if, you know, the idea I started with this character is, well, what if um, he's thrown in, he's a young boy, um, and he's sort of thrown into, he has a pretty nice life on the barges with this sort of travelling community. And there's an accident for which he's sort of kind of blamed for. Um, and he ends up having to leave this with his mother, he's like sort of 14, um, have to move to London and the conditions are pretty horrible and, and being poor in London in the 1890s you were really poor um, and they have to go to a sort of poor house which was so, so they weren't exactly prisons but um, it, you were made to sort of feel very sort of humiliated to go there and people sort of almost had to stay for that kind of reason uh, very hard to get out um, and then he's sort of seduced from there by this guy who sort of promises all this stuff. And he had a much better life, but he turns out to be a thief. Um, and he teaches this boy his craft. Um, and then the boy's mother disappears, and he's got to find her. And this takes him on this journey all across um, to India, where his mother was born. Um, and I just really wanted to do something uh, sort of... When I was a kid, I was really into fantasy. Right? I really, really liked sword and sorcery and all that. And I never thought about writing. It was only the other day I thought, well, actually, what I've done with this 
although I never wrote, really tried anything like that, is that I've actually written a fantasy book without realising, because it's a quest, right? Um, and he goes on this huge sort of quest and meets all these characters. So in a way, I have sort of written a book that I really loved as a kid, sort of without realising it. Um, but yeah, I, I love choosing a time and, and a place and thinking about some characters that would be there. And that's where my stories sort of come from, really. Uh, as I said before, the, uh, the time really came from uh, my father taking me around to these uh, World War II places and then seeing... Well, what actually happened was um, uh, there was a, a cutting in the newspaper uh, about uh, female top guns in Afghanistan that were flying tornado fast jet fighters. And I thought, oh, there's a story there. So I cut it out and put it in the uh, old album in the scrapbook. Um, and then my mother-in-law had one of her uh, woman's own or that kind of magazine and it had uh, another article in there. She said, oh, if you like that, you like this. And it was Joy Lofthouse, the air transport zero pilot I was talking about. Um, so I read that to Google a bit more about her. I went to see her. And when, after she'd signed um, various uh, books and, and uh, uh, prints or paintings, I, she signed it to me. I said, that's on my shelf behind me as an inspiration. Uh, she told me some stories and in the last half an hour when everybody else had gone. I sat down with her and uh, she told me stories like um, wanting to land at uh, particular air stations because uh, if they got, if, if, if there were bandits in the sky they had to land quickly, um, if they couldn't fly above a certain ceiling because of uh, just having to get down quickly, they weren't to fly on instruments, they could fly in bad weather. Uh, sometimes the planes that they were flying to the repair stations were so beat up they could barely make it. Uh, so there's all sorts of reasons why they might have to land not in the place they were intending to. And she said, um, I'd always want to go to a US airbase. Because if you land at a British base, you get tea and biscuits and a lot of, uh, you know, you're stuck in a corner. If you go to an American airbase, you get chocolates and nylons and a lot of attention. And apparently that was too big for all of the ATA women. You know, they would prefer to land there and get lots of gifts than uh, go to an austere British base. And I thought, yeah, this, you know, that's my character. And so that's kind of where the, the time period um, came from. The location is because I live in Kent and I've visited lots of uh, airfields around there. Uh, West Morning's not far from me, Rochester's only a few miles up the road. And I thought, uh, if, I, if I choose an airbase that people know, that certain people know, I'll get all the letters, like Mark Billingham says, oh, you know, he, he always says, oh, uh, somebody wrote in, those about Starbucks on that corner, and it's not on that corner, it's on the far corner, it's not <laughs> So I, did, I wanted to avoid all that, so I invented the airbase, so I could have the configuration how I wanted it. And the village is based on an amalgamation of Westmoreland and a few other villages. Again, so that I can play with uh, where things are. Uh, although I've now drawn myself a map, and as I add things, it gets added to the map. Um, but one of the things about the World War II period, uh, right at the start, is that things like blood typing was not very new. Rhesus positive and negative hadn't been found yet. But that was around that period, it was just about being, to be discovered. Uh, fingerprints were in, but it was rudimentary uh, forensics. Uh, there was a forensic um, department in the Met, but that was kind of bad. Everything got sent to them. Even think, everything, everything fingerprint had to be sent to them. And it took ages to come back, so that time delay builds in a bit of tension. And 
telephone, you know, communications, it was not only the time where you had only landlines, but the landline calls were limited to three minutes or under because of the, the lines were wanted or needed to be freed up for military communication. Uh, so you always had the, uh, the women in the various village halls or had all the local exchanges listening in, timing it, uh, and saying, right, your three minutes is up. Uh, and I put that in the first book because I thought, you know, that's, I remember that. And, you know, I, you know, I remember pips going and having to feed the telephone box yeah. and have you. And I thought, oh, that's great because the, the conversation's got to be short. They've got to get it across quickly and then they can't get hold of people and you don't know where people are. Uh, and I thought, that, that's a, a great thing to play with. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I came from that period. And, and I enjoy researching it as well. In fact, you know, we, we've all done the research on various things and, uh, Whenever you, um, even for somebody who's writing a contemporary book, you, know, you go into the research and you go down rabbit holes. And you know, I can procrastinate days on you know the, sh the shape of various things or uh, the velocity of a bullet. Or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> so time and place. Well, for me, I started with the place because every Saturday we used to take Dad out for lunch at the. Thirsk Garden Centre, which is a wonderful place if you ever go to Thirsk. We liked taking it there because Dad knew where it was, he felt happy there. It was all on one level and it had a great eye line so we could see where he was. There was one stand of crockery he used to gravitate to every weekend, which had this big breakages must be paid for sign on it, so we would spend a little bit of time standing next to that. And I think from the place, everything else came out. I had this idea of these three, um, yeah, and I, do, I use this word carefully, these three wise women sitting in this round table at the corner in the garden centre, putting the world to rights, as I have seen women over the years do so many, many, many times in staff room and by the photocopier. So we start, I started out with that. And so then, of course, I wrote about Ripon, I wrote about Thirsk, there's so many wonderful places around there. I wrote about my parents' village. When I wrote about a village which was not very nice, I deliberately changed it and moved it and whatever. So they're set very much round there. And that is surprising because I say Yorkshire village and you think of hills. It's actually very flat between the moors and the Pennines. It's great flat expanse of the Vale of York. And then the time followed on. I think there were two things. One is if you go into a garden centre, you see the years passing, you see the seasons, by the plant displays, by the Christmas displays, the Halloween displays, and you get this sense of the world turning. And of course, as a primary school teacher, that is ingrained into your DNA. It is going to be so strange in these next few weeks not to be doing a nativity play <laughs> and not to be making calendars and bookmarks and running the mums and dads skadol. I've also dodged a bullet. I will not be dressing up as a snowman and having phone pelted at me PTA, mistletoe and wine. And so each book has very definite time. The first one is in that period of spring, uh, winter going into spring. The second one is the autumn. The third one, I've set it all in the run up to Christmas. And I had a great time writing about the great tunnel of lights in the garden centre and how they have 
Brian the reindeer, so the Rudolph who sits in the corner and the kids bringing carrots and stuff. And I'd written this whole thing in, and the publisher said, "Oh, we oh look, just one thing, don't make it Christmas." <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the garden centre and I said, "Well, what happens in January?" She said, "Seed potatoes." <laughs> so I had to swap my twinkly tunnel of lights and my Christmas world. For seed potatoes. <laughs> However, I am told that is the writer's lot. That's in your calendar. I'll make it. That's been an activity play. You see, he's a good Joseph. I've, I've dressed up as Santa, but I've never been a snowman. Hey, PTA will bite your hand. Sorry, <laughs> darling. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'm just thinking for the next book festival. Yeah, Perhaps there's an idea. Well, PTA, there's a gap. <laughs> I'll take a calendar as well. I'm not fussy. How did your chosen time or place affect how your characters developed and how they interacted with each other? Um, well, hugely, um, because the time and place in my first book, Mirror Game, it really affects um, our protagonist, Harry, um, because he's sort of haunted by memories of the war, as a lot of people were. Um, it, it was horrific, the First World War especially. It was um, the trenches, it was sometimes hand-to-hand -hand combat, imagine that, you know, to just with, with homemade clubs sometimes. Horrendous, so he sort of remembers all of that. So he, even though he's past that, it very much sort of affects him throughout the book and him sort of getting on with that and how he then um, has relationships with people because he's obviously um, <laughs> he's sort of withdrawn really. Um, he deals with it through Lord and other stuff. And, um, but he, he does okay. I don't give too much away. He does all right. Um, so that time and um, very much affected it. And the same, you know, going back to um, the second one, The Apprentice Thief, set in Victorian London and India. Um, in India, this lad has to face, he's partly um, British, partly Indian, so he doesn't feel like he really belongs anywhere. Um, and then obviously when he goes to India, um, he encounters the British army, um, and it's, it's worse, you know, he's, he's made to feel completely like he doesn't have a foot in sort of either camp. Um, so very much, again, affects the way he views the world, and, and that's what, what I like. But that's what I find interesting about exploring these things. Um, I don't almost mind when I write. I, say, I, seem to, I, I sort of feel at a certain point I couldn't go back further. Um, sort of cork moles and wigs, I don't know if I could do that. But, um, but any time from the sort of 1800s to now, really, yeah, I think there's all sorts of different ways that people can be affected, technology, lack thereof. Um, uh, and it, it's a fun and fascinating subject, so my characters sort of come from that, really. Um, yeah. Um, the, there are various relationships uh, in the book, and one of them is the Scott Neal detective who comes to uh, investigate the murder. He uh, has got a superintendent that um, he doesn't really get along with. He's, the, uh, the detective has, uh, has done something in his past in, in the Met Police and he's had to be seconded back out to his, uh, his, his home county. So he goes to Tombridge. Uh, um, they don't really want him, the superintendent doesn't want him. Um, and I, I, found, I found out uh, that there was a, a triple murder at a place called Brinchley Parish. 
uh, and it was on the exact day that I'd set my alert up, which was bizarre. So I thought, ah, I'm going to use that because there was two guys. There was um, Peter Beveridge, who, who was the real Scotland Yard detective, and Bernard Spilsbury, who was the Home Office pathologist. Uh, and they pretty much came down and, you know, as the Scotland Yard do, or did in those days, they came down and they took over and they um, took all the manpower away to investigate this murder. And that's how my detective gets sent to this little village on his own, because there's nobody else to go. And you have to go off and do that on your own. Um, so there's that relationship with his superintendent. Then there's the uh, two guys on the air station, Dunnington, uh, Group Captain Dunnington and Wilkermine Matfield, who are typical of their period of uh, uh, sexist and misogynistic. They don't want women on their air base. Uh, they've managed, up in, uh, before this book starts, they've managed to get rid of pretty much every waff that came their way. Um, they've got as many men there as possible rather than women. So when the ATA are, uh, are posted there, um, it's against everything that he stands for. And he's, you know, he's ringing up everyone that he can think of. He's even tried to get through to number 10 to try and get rid of these people, uh, these women, uh, without success. <clears throat> so they come up against that. Uh, also, also those two don't like the uh, detective, and the detective then coming up against these people who are um, supposedly of a higher class than him, and they instantly don't like each other. They, uh, you know, one thinks they're you know, not good enough, and the other thinks they're, they're too haughty. Uh, so there's that. Then there's um, uh, Hayes, uh, who is. Um, Lucy Hayes, she's, she comes from a period when women didn't do things like fly aeroplanes. And uh, if you look into the history of the ATA, it took a lot of work by uh, Pauline Gower to, to um, get what, what was then called the, uh, the first eight to get to fly. Uh, because the men didn't want them to break the aeroplanes. And they thought that the moment they got up there, they'd crash them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I, I can't remember, I, I, might, I can't remember her name now, but one of them uh, told a story where she flew this uh, twin-engine bomber into this airfield, and she got down, and uh, the engineers completely ignored her. And she said, well, what are you waiting for? And they said, we're waiting for the pilot. She said, it's me. And they, they, had, they searched the plane, trying to find the pilot, and they had to accept that she'd landed the thing. Um, so there's that uh, thing about you know, that relationship throughout the RAF, that the, you know, women couldn't fly airplanes, they'd break them. Um, they were slightly like a flying way. Uh, then I imbue my character with um, various uh, issues. She's got, she has panic attacks. Um, she's uh, you know, got uh, anxiety. And uh, I, I got some emails saying, you, you can't do that. You can't, you can't have that kind of woman flying an airplane. Uh, then I have to write back and remind them that um, the, the original group were men who couldn't fly in the RAF because they were either too old or too infirm and they were nicknamed uh, ancient and tattered airmen. <laughs> <coughs> one of them uh, only had one eye, uh, others were other partially sighted in other ways and one guy only had one arm and the way he took off was he gripped the stick between his legs and did the throttle with his other leg and so he basically flew with two, arm, two legs and one arm. Uh, and he managed to land and, and uh, take off these pieces of these planes. So uh, having one woman who 
in, in the book, when she's flying, she's free. She doesn't have any issue with um, with her with her issues. Uh, it's only on the ground when she kind of gets certain situations that she starts to feel these panics and she gets you know, mild OCD and things like that. Uh, and uh, that came from a woman called um, Beatrice Edgell, who was the first woman in Britain to get a psychology PhD and she had to do it abroad. So I made her my mentor of my uh, female character um, and she helped her through the PhD. This is kind of backstory in the book, she helps her through the PhD and uh, man, and, and she gets her to do these things in, in Oxford Prison for, you know, for part of her PhD, which is how she then becomes this profiler. And she does it in a way that is, it's not, it's not like the program Miss Marvel, you know, she's an individual Miss Marvel, when she kind of goes, ooh, ah, and yes. then suddenly comes up with the answer. <clears throat> um, she does it in a different way. She, she kind of relaxes her eyes and, and sees uh, other, not, not visions or anything like that, but um, and it came from what I could, you know, do you, does anyone remember the um, magic eye pictures, the 3D pictures? Yeah. I can get them instantly, my wife can't get any of them. The only ones I have trouble with are slightly blue ones, but I can look at a 3D picture and get them instantly. And people around me are going, there's nothing there. Um, and that's kind of what I give to her. She relaxes her eyes and, and can see in her mind's heart eye a solution to what's going on. Um, and that kind of thing, you know, you know, back earlier than that period, you'd have been um, burned as a witch. <laughs> uh, people didn't understand anxiety and uh, you know, things from the First World War, um, combat fatigue, uh, was very, very new. You know, before it's called shell shock, it's called something else. And, and, uh, so all these things create tension between my characters because there's so much sexism, misogynism, uh, classism. Uh, every ism I could come up with, I'll put it in there just in case. <laughs> and uh, just before I pass over, in the third book, uh, I take them out there and take them to a, a coal mine in Kent. Um, I discovered there was a coal mining industry uh, up until the 70s, I think. And uh, I thought, yeah, well, okay, they're no longer with Dannington and Matfield, and those were some of parents. But the closed community of a mine in those days was the same thing. They, they did have women, but they worked above, sorting the coal into nutty slack and, and, and good stuff and all that kind of thing. But they weren't allowed to be near the machinery or the mines. So when my character turns up, and then Liz Hayes turns up as well, and they get to go down the mine, you know, it, it's kind of everyone is against them because it shouldn't be there, should they? It's not, it's not a dumb thing for a woman, especially their class, to be anywhere near it. And the other thing about that is because they're snowed in. Oh, the third one, yeah, they're snowed in, yeah. They're, they're in this claustrophobic, it's kind of like a locked room, but not a locked room, a locked space. Mm. And I would say that their relationship develops because of that place and situation they find themselves in, without giving any spoilers. <laughs> but listening to both you two, because I've never really thought about that before, and you asked that, I'm thinking, God, I'm glad I'm third. But you're both talking about people who are out of their safe space. You're talking about people who are put somewhere else. And I think I'm exactly the opposite because my women do go, ooh. <laughs> because, because they do, because yeah. if you're a primary school teacher, you have had years of spotting misdemeanors on all sorts of different levels. And the fact that they, they go and meet in, and they have their table in the garden center, the round one in the corner, 
well, I can see the Edinburgh woolen mill. It's, that's, I think if you're in that place of security, then that gives you the uh, headspace, the wisdom, the something, the ground to then move forward and, and move out and think and what have you. Though I hadn't really thought of it before. But time, yeah, it, it's in the DNA of every teacher. You show me a teacher who doesn't walk past the craft shop and think, oh, Easter baskets. <laughs> Before I come back, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the panels earlier were talking about um, women and how they see each other. And one of my characters doesn't like Lizzie Hayes uh, for, because of, she starts to see her issues and uh, starts to question whether she's, she's worthy. Uh, and that came from my experience of standing on the station. You know, I used to be a commuter for God knows how many years. And you could see the men. A, a, a pretty woman would go by and they'd kind of look at her and that'd be it. A woman would walk by and you could see the women. They, they were kind of, that's not great here, is it? What's she doing wearing those shoes? Look at that skirt. And you could see it in her eyes. And when I asked my wife that, she said, well, there was a case when she was in a, a restaurant. And, um, all of a sudden it went silent and she realised one by one they'd been listening to the um, conversation on the next table, which is another group of women having a go at each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I took that and put it in because it's not just the men that were against women flying, um, it was women themselves. I mean, the women in the village say, you can't be flying. So uh, it was, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what you call that, it's not sexism, is it? It's, just women being bitches. Bit much. <laughs> I didn't say that. No, as I'm a woman, it's fine. We are. We hate. I don't know why. We just really. Men are worse bitches. Um, <laughs> um, so you all chose a particular time period or the place. So what was the fun, most fun bit about doing it? Um. For the Apprentice Thief, I, I just really loved 1890 <coughs> London. Um, I, I really did. So we, we talked about, you know, if you have a fantasia, we don't see things. But I, I see really, really visually. Um, I think that having a fantasia is good because you concentrate on the words, actually. I think it's really good. No, I do. Because you, you see images, uh, and I write scenes, and then someone else reads them, and there's no door. So yeah, there is. I saw it. It was just over there. No, you didn't write it. <laughs> um, so I, um, I really liked. I looked at loads of images um, of London, a lot of um, sort of sketches, drawings, um, a few photographs around, um, and I got. I, I sort of got into it that way. Um, so looked at loads. It's really sort of Victorian art. You know, I love the real thing about fog. I don't know why. Um, gas lights. You know, all that sort of stuff. And that was actually one of the most fun things, and then um, getting all these sort of details. I, I'm a really um, terrible researcher, I'm really lazy. Um, so I like to sort of make it up and then go back and go to the flow to work and have to rewrite it. Um, but because I wanted to get the story out, I, I tried to constrict myself too much. Um, but there's one thing that I really liked that, that really set the character off. Um, so I'm, I'm actually to wear this book now. Harry, and um, he has a, a cigarette case, uh, sorry, a cigarette lighter um, made from a 303 bullet from a shell, and it's quite common for um, veterans to have those. And um, 
I really like some artifacts in novels. I don't know, I just really like them. And, and, and that, for me, um, was, was one of the things I really sort of enjoyed. Um, it's funny, that little detail, and that, that, that sort of every time I thought about that, um, that sort of unlocked that sort of world for me. Um, and and same with The Apprentice Thief, I looked at lots and lots of artwork from the period. Um, I found doing that, it really helps, really helps to sort of visualise this world. So apart from the actual writing, which is always fun, that, that's one of the things I sort of really enjoyed. Yeah, I agree with that the writing thing. Um, if you're having a really difficult day, it could be the worst thing in the world, but when it's flowing, it's really great. <coughs> um, yeah, research for me, uh, I really like doing that. As I said before, I can go down a rabbit hole and spend days on, on various things. Um, I went to the uh, 1940s day at Chatham Dockyard, and uh, they, they do the siren, the World War II siren, and then they take a small group of people into one of the public shelters there. Um, and then they, you know, they sit you down and they, they talk you through what would have happened. You know, the little bucket at the end, you're going to spin a uh, curtain across uh, the way it smelled, and like, so that I put that, in, that detail in the book. Uh, and you, you learn little things that you didn't know before. Like, uh, he said, again, I, I find it in the book, he, he said that um, they take a roll call as you go, what's your name, what's your name, they write it down. Then they roll it up and they put it in the canister, and then he throws it as far away as possible from the entrance. The idea is that if you are get a direct hit on your shelter, they find that canister and know who was in there. Oh, oh that's, that's great, that's going to So uh, just speaking to people like him, you know, and museum people and characters like Jay, uh, uh, Joe Lofthouse, you get so much that you, you know, just little details that give you a lot of verisimilitude in, in, in your work. And uh, I find that uh, endlessly fascinating. And, uh, you know, if ever, the writing career stops. I'm going to dig out some of this research and um, go down more rabbit holes. <laughs> You're not going to be a snowman hotel at Christmas, are you? They give me three stars at the garden centre. Sorry. It's great. I And honestly, the stars are absolutely amazing. Fun. <laughs> Escape me. No, it, like you say, when it's going well, it's brilliant. Two, I suppose, two answers to that. One, one, one is a lot more serious because I did really write that because Dad had one of these awful frauds. Someone rang him up and said, You've got to transfer all your money out of your account, and he did, and it was lost, and there was never any redressing, and that was dreadful. So when people say cozy crime, I think having been on the receiving end of it, it's anything but cosy, you know. However, I was able to write in this book what I would say to that fraudster and get and lay that ghost, move on, I've got that piece. And fun, oh, there's so much. Um, I think sitting with my sister, who is crimepedia, honestly, she's read all the books and whatever. And we were sitting in the beer garden at the Boot Inn in Eskdale, which is another wonderful place. I'm wondering if I can work that into a novel so they'll give me free Chardonnay when I go in. <laughs> and working out how we can make a charity shop disappear and why. That was great. That was <laughs> Did you ever figure it out? You'll have to wait till March. Okay. <laughs> you have to see whether we did it convincingly. Okay. Um, does anyone have any questions for these gentlemen? I have that.
interesting for all three of you. Uh, could you name one thing about researching your latest books you enjoyed? Mm -hmm. um, I think anything to do with that time period. I actually weirdly um, really enjoyed researching clothes. <laughs> um, I've gone to this whole thing, it's going to sound weird, I know, um, like women's dresses. But it's really interesting, and, and the way that the lines changed. And there's one thing that if you sort of get that wrong, again, it's the thing I know I said, I'm a lazy researcher, but I do do it in the end. Um, someone's going to go, it's unconvincing, it's someone that knows about that stuff. They're going to go, well, it's not right. And what I discovered, I wrote, because um, it's what I sort of saw, women wearing bustles walking down the street. Um, and my character's looking for any one of them that might be his mother. And she was sorry, so she would stand out. Um, but he's looking for all these bustles. So I then found out, so I thought I'd better do this research. They didn't have them. Names and aunties had gone. Um, and they were in these, what they call, mutton sleeves, and the bustles had gone. Um, and I found stuff like that quite into it. Um, and um, different materials, and different materials for saris as well. That was another really interesting one um, because they all mean different things. Um, very, very, very sort of personal to people and regions. Um, and I found this really good website um, that, that just had loads of pictures of saris. Really interesting. Colours were great. Uh, and I, I went down that rabbit hole. I actually spent quite a lot of time looking at that stuff. So that was, yeah, really interesting. So, uh, I, I got emailed um, by some chap who said, uh, absolute rubbish. Uh, you, know, you couldn't get wine and, and food in a country pub in 1940. So I just emailed them back all my research links. And I got one, and the email came back. It's just a, uh, an embarrassed smiley face. Um, <laughs> Because I do try and try and get it right as much as possible. You can't get it right all the time. No, the, the best thing uh, about the research for these three books was, was meeting Joy Lockout. The time I spent with her was, yeah. was brilliant, and I wish I had more time. Um, she never wrote her own autobiography, but there is a, a book with a small passage of hers in it. Um, but I've read all the other ATA women's uh, autobiographies, and they're all you know, fascinating stories. I mean, one of them uh, ended up um, flying fast jets. Yeah, she, uh, she felt absolutely jet fighters herself, uh, having started in Chinese training aircraft. So yeah, speaking to women like that was, was, uh, was probably the best thing for these three books. So um, my boss's husband started work as a, a cargo delivery driver. <coughs> and so we went to the tram shed, which is a pub near where I live in Shipley. And we spent three hours, and he just told me all these stories about delivery drivers. Here is a tip: if you want to have a someone in a crowd, have them as a delivery driver, because they just go up to people's houses, they knock on the doors, they look through the windows, they see all sorts. Tell me all sorts of tales, which I won't repeat, but uh, were were really good. So, so that was that was great. Never know where the question's going to go, then. <laughs>
the second one was uh, I got the, the, they were okay they were good, they did good but um, I didn't know if it was going to go anywhere so um, they didn't seem overly bothered if I wrote anything else or not so I thought I'd try somewhere else so I did get a publisher um, no not they did we got a publisher um, but they, we, we weren't really an ideal match it wasn't anything terrible it was an ideal match uh, and I didn't see it going very far so I ended up because I really enjoyed writing this book. <laughs> Um, I wanted to get it out, I think we all did. Um, obviously, we just left it on the bed, really, but um, I kind of wanted to see it um, out there in print, so I, I published it myself. Um, and yeah, that's it, really. Past uh, publication. Well, um, having uh, finally written the first of the three books, I walked it around a bit, got some good feedback, and thought actually it needs to go to the next level. And you don't need to do a writing course, but I felt that I benefited from it. So I paid money and I, I went to Curtis Brown Creative. I did their three month course in London and I found my writing tribe and uh, we've, you know, there's a lot of us that have got book deals, including, and you might know her, Bonnie Garmas, who wrote uh, Letters in Chemistry, which is now on television. She hates the series, by the way. She says there's nothing, she says, you know, they, they muck around with it a bit. Uh, somebody else was saying earlier about transferring to screen. Um, yeah, so at the end of that, you get to have a drinks party with agents, and uh, none of the agents were interested in taking my book because one of the agents already had something similar, but did say, why don't you enter a couple of competitions? And one of them was the Blue Pencil Agency First Novel Award. So uh, I sent off a requisite number of words, uh, was surprised to be long-listed, and thought, ah, great, uh, I'm getting somewhere. Then shortlisted, brilliant, even better, came third. First was to be represented by one of the agents, second was a, a mentoring package. But I got a call from Nell Andrew, who was the agent on, on the panel, and she said, I really like the character you've got there and the, you know, the plot. And she said, I, she said, you know, I'm very hands-on editorially. Would you, this is a signing with me and working with me to do, you know, to upscale it. Uh, I said, yeah, of course. Um, so she took me on, and uh, within uh, four or five months of working with her, I had the book deal. So um, just taking the advice of that agent, who already had something, something similar in the book, led me on that path to uh, final publication. Yeah, I've been waiting at this bus stop 25 years. <laughs> I used to write fringe theatre, didn't work out, write for Radio 4, didn't work out, found myself back in primary school teacher again. And I went on a course, just like yours, only I suspect it was a bit cheaper. It was one that ran in Middlesbrough. So I, I, I sketched out this novel. I went to Middlesbrough, and again, you got to meet agents. Um, if you think doctors are young, you should try agents. So. <laughs> and except for one who was uh, who was smoking outside, making a pint of Guinness, then I got on with him. He liked the script, and of course, there's always those stories. You send it off, you don't hear back. You send it off, but you know, I could do a PhD in that, having worked in theatre. So you know, that's just part of it. And um, and then basically, I think he lied to all the big publishing houses and said that I've got a deal with Penguin. <laughs> which I haven't. So, but the, the advice I would give anybody, if they are at all interested in writing, theatre, radio, 
um, I work I write for Radio 4, is to get yourself out there to events like this, to writing groups, writing courses, the more, because all of my chances have come about through meeting people, hearing people. I heard about this course from a writer friend of mine and whatever. Um, so, yeah, I always used to think, oh, when I get an agent, when I get this, when I get that. But right, when I look back at me, it's all been to do with me sort of being involved in these different worlds. Unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time. Um, the guys will be around. They've got books available to buy. Don't and I haven't. Oh, you haven't? I've only got these two. <laughs> have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> They're very good. <laughs> tell me about a serial killer thing. Do you want to hear a story about a serial killer before we finish? Yeah. yeah. There we go. You. Have you got a story about a serial killer? <laughs> I have. Okay. Right, so I was... Uh, I met my wife in the uh, civil service and we were both working in Croydon. Um, I got promotion went up to London and we were decided to live in together uh, before we got married and started a family. We moved to Chatham. Uh, uh, Jane didn't like commuting back to Croydon so she took an excess thing and went to Cooperwood Prison. Uh, she was in the prison service industries and farms at, uh, at, uh, at Croydon. Um, so they readily took her because she didn't want procedures and so she went to work in the admin block. Along comes our daughter uh, a little while later and uh, as you do, you want to take them in and, and meet uh, your uh, colleagues. So she uh, arranged for me to bring Laura into the admin area which is between the two walls so you don't go actually into the main prison uh, but you do go inside the outer walls. Um, and each area has trustees and to the, uh, the admin block had uh, a trustee and uh, we're in there and I'm standing over here, James over there uh, with Laura um, and they're all going the, the Gucci coup and in comes this little uh, old, oldish woman, grey curly hair, uh, gruff granny voice and immediately went, oh a baby and took her off of Jane and started doing Gucci coup and it was Myra Henley. Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> she was the trustee of the admin block in Cookenwood while my wife was there working. And uh, she, while she had Laura in her arms, and I shall do this, uh, this is, she saw me at the far side of the room, and this is what she did. There's nothing she can do. Stop shaking. Right. Um, there's nothing she can do. There's all these people around her. We're perfectly safe. Um, but it was all the hair on my neck stood up. Uh, and then a prison officer came and said, I don't think that's a good idea, Myra. <laughs> <laughs> but Jane said that when she took her, she didn't know what to do because, because all the people around her, you, know, you, you can't just smash her back out there. You can't have that. Um, but yeah, the prison officer did, thank God. But the addendum to that is like, and that Christmas, my wife got a card, um, and I couldn't find it on my phone and show it if anyone wants to see it, but uh, it's a, a tiny little card with a Victorian painting of a baby on the front. And inside it says, uh, to Jane, the baby on the front is not a patch on Laura, Myra. Uh, well, yeah. So we've kept that. <laughs>
Wow. How do you tell Laura this story? Oh, she dines out on it, yeah. <laughs> she's, now, uh, she's now a detective. Um, so. <laughs> Can you not see cause and effect going on? Sorry. Well, that is a brilliant point to end on, and thank you very much to my panel. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where should we should we go to a different place? Maybe towards